0: CHAPTER sixteen eleven twenty seven 11.27 HOURS The 12th of October, 2047 Estrelita The space in the middle of the lab went dark. The shadowy figure of the prince faded. Lights! Ord called, getting up off the stool and stretching. But Shearer knew that it wasn't yet over. Grandfather's mind was still locked into the beacon. Sir, Prosser said, and pointed to the scimitar, which was still going strong. Christ! Or looked at the chronister. It's gone eleven. What's happening to him? She ignored him. A faint murmur was coming from the back of her mind. She closed her eyes, tried to go deeper. She'd been squatting by the wall now without moving since the visions began, not needing Ord's hologram, seeing the whole thing unfold within, just as Grandfather was doing hearing just as much as they via the synergizer and feeling it as they never could. Ord mumbled something about being hungry. Suk went into the observation booth, brought out soy-calf and cookies. Shera felt her nudge waved her away without even opening her eyes. She mustn't lose concentration. She was tiring some, for she'd never stayed in continuous contact with anybody this long. Grandfather was tiring too, she could sense it, but his energy level was still high, higher than it had ever been before. The murmuring grew more distinct. Voices, then just grandfathers in her head, and now out through the synergizer into the lab. She pressed her fists against her forehead to squeeze her surroundings out. The first few days after her return from proof, Tana trod close by the wall, even though Gar had stayed behind. Nothing seemed changed, Bells rang, folk went to board. There were the usual late night carousals, and brawls and gossip. Intrigue there was a plenty, but it concerned only who was sleeping with whom, and who had won the latest jousting match. In the banquet hall, Brack still sat at Sharrock's right hand, Berwick his left the general looked just the same and as ever occasionally his great loud laugh hit the rafters sometimes perhaps feeling her eye upon him he'd look up and along the tables in her direction but if he ever noticed her he gave no sign it were as if they had never met that night at all but not Everything was the same. Life was bleak without talk. She felt lonely, bereft. Contrary to what she'd told Felix, no one bothered her, and that was strange. Talk must have made her position really clear about the citadel. On the seventh night after her return, she was so unbearably lonely that she crept down to the scroll room. A noise from Ord. Shira opened her eyes briefly, saw the T.S. shimmering. Saw Ord, soy calf in hand, staring towards the empty space as it filled now with dim lamplight light in a low, wide chamber. She closed her eyes again, and there was the girl, looking not much older than Shearer herself, sitting at what looked like a Victorian writing desk, stroking it as though it were very precious to her. She sighed a deeper sigh, and here the girl's thoughts came through grandfather's mind. Her thought tinged with all the subtlety of her feeling. There was fear there, tension, the fear of being caught, but also a longing, a homesickness, every bit as intense as Shearer's own, but sadder, much sadder, for it was for time that would never come again. tana closed her eyes savouring the special smell of the scribal chamber a musky smell of parchment and ink and wax and old dry wood durack's chamber had been high and narrow yet well lit with clear story and skylights Often she sat up in the storage gallery, looking down on her father's bent head. This chamber was low and wide, with no windows at all. Only lamps, in wall and ceiling, one standing tall by the scribe's script board She well recalled her father's desk. A plainer piece than this, having none of the heavy gilt, and flying panels. There'd been birds on Florian's desk, this birds sucking on ripe peculars, well out of the reach of leaping langors beneath. The lines had felt so smooth in the mellow wood, not harshly chiselled as the cronets and crests and crowns on this royal stand. She rested her hand on the sloping script board, remembering Durac's hands moving over his scrolls. Graceful hands, economical and compact as he himself had been. Tanner got up from the tall stool. So long since she'd sat on her father's. But she mustn't linger. She mustn't be seen in there. She crossed to the script chest, where, with the aid of a small knife from her pocket, she prized it open and stole two parchment scrolls, filled her empty perfume flask with precious ink. Then she pulled down the chest lid and reclosed the lock. If the royal scribe found anything missing, or noticed the faint scratches around the padlock, he'd never suspect her. She went back to her chamber and bolted the door. There she prepared to begin what was to be a nightly journal, which, she promised herself, she'd keep till talk came back. Into it, In her fine, neat script, she'd pour her loneliness, her thoughts, her feelings, filling the time she'd have spent in his bed until she could sleep. From under her own narrow cot, she pulled a small door chest, and lifting out the choice laces and semi-precious stones and rings that Florian had given her, she pressed a catch, raising the bottom. In the tiny secret space beneath lay a flat black box fastened with a gold clasp. This she took up, and sitting back on her bed, she set it on her knee and raised the lid. Inside, On a cushion of gold harpile lay her precious writing tools. First the glator, set of ink blades cut into different shapes and thicknesses. Then the Rill, bundle of quills, the quill being handle and ink reservoir for the glater. The shone. Hair fine wire to ream a blade's ink groove while in the quill. A fool, rod of pale hard green stone for sharpening the glitter, a morpher, pot of red chalk for cancelling errors, and the grosch, small granular sack, blotter bag splotched with old ink. She ran her fingers over the blades, lightly touching each one, mouthing their names silently, remembering how she'd learned to fit them to the quill, remembering the nights and nights she'd spent by the hearth learning their uses, how each one was shaped exactly to the scribe's needs. Himalaya, curved like a young moon, for short, blunt lettering. Need a sharp listening, for lines no thicker than a spider's thread, her favourite. Indeed, for so long she played with that one, honing it to such a fine point, and tracing wiggly lines all over the parchment, that Durak would search her box for the pet spider, he said, she kept to do her work. Her face softened. For five sonorans these tools had laid him. Five sonorans. Durac was but bone now, but she just couldn't see it. Whenever she spoke with him, he was always as she remembered him in his gray harsh half-silk robe, the colour of his scant grey beard and the shrewd gray eyes under the hang of his gray brows. She reached in and took up, listening, sharpened it against the fool. Now, Chirac, she whispered, let's see just how well I've kept your mystery. For three more nights, she sat in the closeness of her tiny cell, scratching away, drying the ink with a grosh, rolling the parchment up tightly, and stowing it back under her darsilts. Thirty-two days of loneliness, she wrote on the fourth night, and this day dull as ever. I shall go mad. My body swells for love, but from only one lover. She paused. What a fool she was, pretending to a love that didn't exist or could ever. She was living a fantasy. She was, and only ever could be for talk, no more than a body to be used, She pouted stubbornly, not a fantasy. It had been done before. Hadn't Queen Teriane been born of a third equerry? Her blade had saved the then Crown Prince one night when he would have fallen by his uncle's sword. And then there was sure, born a slave, who won King Mohawk's heart. He'd offered her freedom. Then the bed of first concubine, but she'd refused, risking death in her pride. Instead of having her put down, Mohawk made her queen. As those women had succeeded, so might she. She dipped listening, tapped off the excess ink whatever happens as i gave talk my word so shall i keep it she leaned back admiring the perfection of her lettering the straightness of the lines she would have liked to embellish them with flowers and birds and curlicues but she had to make the parchment last Promises. She'd promised to stay faithful. An easy enough promise to keep with Gar still in proof. But what when he came back? She pushed that thought away uneasily. She'd also promised to be Tork's eyes and ears. Since her return, she'd heard nothing, seen nothing. And how could she expect to? Going to ground straight after evening board? If anything were to be seen, it was in the dark hours, even now. Who knows what might be happening out there? Or who might be moving from stable to citadel or barracks and back again? What a coward she was. All she'd heard were rumours of riots and pillaging near the weald. Not rumours. It was the truth. She began to write again. Those troubles didn't start in the weald, but from within this very citadel. Dork thought so. And I know so. And I know who might be behind them. She paused, then scratched out no. She didn't, not really. She thought again of the night it had so suddenly crossed her path. Because of him, the man had gotten clear away. Mark's suspicions weren't enough. She had to be sure. If only I had proof, she wrote, I would be able to send word to him. She halted, absently scribing the R with tiny rolling waves. How would she send word? And what if it weren't Ferric at all? What if he'd been keeping a weather eye around the place and in turn had seen and suspected her? Then was she in jeopardy indeed, for Ferric did have the ear of the king. She wiped the blade clean. If only she could talk to someone Anyone? But she couldn't. No one would listen to her. Not Sherlock, certainly not Melfer, not Brach, and not Gar. She saw again Ferec's eyes glittering in the starlight, the glint of steel as it pressed into her chest. Who then? Who, if not any of them. She cleared her writing things away. Then, wrapping her mantle close about her, she slipped out through the servant's door and down the back stairs. The moment Tanner reached the shadow of the stables, she doubted her impulse. Why had she come there? The first night had been but a coincidence. A dead man had been hidden, retrieved. If she suspected Felix, better she take a walk by the barracks, and not for just one night. She was turning to leave when there came a sudden shout from the stable front, and the sound of fars coming fast. She had no sooner made the shadow of the first rank of stalls when a rider burst into the stable yard, his gun fall on, trailing in his wake. One glimpse of the Ganangar colours and brilliant yellow streamers inferior sent her fleeing back into the dim stalls where the dead man had lain. Gar was back from proof. She must take the side door now and get back to her room fast. And if he sent for her this night, she'd say she had the flux a lie, for she'd had it during the last week in proof. But he was not to know that. She padded along by the stalls and opened the side door a slit, just as she'd done that other night. Now, as then, the sky was clear overhead and close enough to reach up and pluck a o hung like a ripe pecula while far beyond her, tiny, remote forfear glistened, still, bright pin in the wheeling firmament. She stepped out, drew back again, not breathing. A man had rounded the stable front and was hurrying by the path leading to the barracks. After a second, she slipped out and followed him, her heart beating faster and faster, and not just on account of the sudden exertion. What if she was seen again? What if... She relaxed a little. What if the man were on some perfectly innocent errand. Ahead were the bright lights of the compound. He'd have to turn aside soon, or be challenged by the barrack's sentries. Suddenly, into the moonlight stepped Beric, barring the man's way. She waited, her blood leaping, for Felix to challenge the man, as he'd challenged her that night by the towers. But he didn't. Instead, at a word from Felix they both turned from the bright path into the dark bushes dividing barracks from Citadel. She must go, while she could. "'run back to her chamber and into the safety of her bed. "'But her feet took her the other way "'until the two men stopped in a small, moonlit clearing. "'She moved closer, tree by tree, "'the murmur of voices growing louder, "'yet still not quite distinct. "'What could they be talking about?' Gar's man and the king's general. What could they possibly? Quite clearly she saw the man's hand come up, holding something out. Beric took it, turned it, and held it to the light. Then, nodding, he slipped it inside his cloak. She'd seen something like it before in Arabat's hand. A small wooden stick with teeth down one side of it. Tork hadn't told her what it was at first. Not until after he'd taken her back to bed. A shook tek, he'd called it. Call-stick to a cabal. There was treason in the citadel, he'd told her. And that was the proof. Whoever had issued it was after Sherlock's crown. Now there was Felix at that very moment, standing but a few paces from her, accepting a like thing from this man of grass. How? What could it mean? Was Gar a traitor also? The men turned suddenly and came towards her. Quickly she slid around the broad trunk of the tree and pressed against it under the shelter of her cloak. They reached her and walked past. Shall be there, and then we have Gar. After I myself shall to the king. I shall pay you well for this, Ibron. Saluting, Ibra took his leave, making for the stables, while Ferric set off along the path leading back to the barracks gate. When Tanner moved at last, her knees were so weak that she almost fell down. She climbed the turret stair to her room. Vaulted the door, threw off her clothes, and burrowed under the covers. But she couldn't sleep. Gar's man, Ebrow, she'd often seen him about the Citadel, promoted from barracks sergeant into Gar's service as a minor aide, and Ferrick, doing what? She saw the shuktek in Felix's hand, heard his plain satisfaction. Shall be there, and then we have got. After I myself shall go to the king. I'll pay you well for this, Ibro. Felix, more talks farther than Sherlock, they said. She had been right. He was the one. And to think talk had gone to him on the night of his departure. lucky for him that Brack had also been there, or perhaps talk might not have lived to go to Rome. Could she go to the king now or to Brack? She huddled under the sheets, if they wouldn't listen to talk and he with take in hand, what chance had she to make them listen to empty words against the king's own man? But Gah! However much she despised him, was he not still the king's son? Could she stand by and watch him die by Felix's hand? After him... The King would follow, so Felix had said, then, what of talk thereafter she sat up in the dark. What a pretty past things had come to. Not only was she talk's eyes and ears, but on too, whatever the cost, there was only one thing to do. She slipped her feet to the floor. And reached for her dress. Gar received her in a small anteroom of his front hall. He was reclining on a narrow day bed, the sort much in use about the citadel for dispatching quick and urgent favours. The insult wasn't lost on her, but she reminded herself. She mustn't lose her head. On the way there, she'd decided exactly what to say and do to escape intact from that place. His teeth gleamed white in his beard. A pleasant, lady, to see you. But I've not sent for you as yet. It's not that... I must speak with you urgently. Gar swung his feet to the floor. Oh, don't be coy. Everyone, including my brother, knows that you'll end up in my bed sooner or later. He stood up, moved towards her. Highness, Tanner spoke quickly. One of your household is working you grave harm. Gar frowned. "'Harm? Before I say more?' "'She hesitated, but when he didn't interrupt her, she went on. "'I would have your word that I leave here this night for the Queen's Tower as freely as I came.' "'She took a deep breath, but all Gar said was, "'Speak on.' "'Dana told him everything.' realising, as she did so, what she was giving away, how she felt about him, how she'd hidden from him, and where, indirectly revealing away her precious refuge. She told him of the night that talk left, of following the man along the path behind the barracks, and of this last night, of seeing Ferec with gauze and aid, the that had changed hands. The last thing I heard was that Ferec was first going to deal with you and then his majesty, the king. I had the feeling that it was going to be very soon. And my man's name, lady? She hesitated. This was the hardest part for in pronouncing his name she was condemning him to certain death Ibral ebral Gar's mouth set him up in a thin, tight slit like Torx when he was angry. You will remain here, he said, then went out. She ran to the door, put her ear to it, heard only feet swiftly cross and recross the hall. She went to the window, parted the half-piled drapes. Her arms opened wide, seeking air's comfort. Saw instead red forkersier, huge bale star that men called Death's Beacon. She snapped the curtains shut again, closing out the dread omen and her pale and startled reflection subtending it. The edge of Gar's bed sagged under her sudden weight. She leaned forward, put her head between her knees, and there she stayed until she heard Gar's voice at the door. Here, lady, now shall you call out the man face to face. Ibra stood to attention in the centre of the chamber, still the soldier for all his fancy harpire livery. She met his eye briefly, looked down. Well? It was Ibra, whom I saw and his name, that I heard. You're sure, lady? Certain, her voice trembled. The flame light from the sconces caught the man's eye, a baleful light, like Hawkesia's. You will wait, Gar said to her. But you said, he strode, The door threw it open. The lady Tanner will make herself comfortable in my bedchamber, he called. She is to have anything for her comfort. Out, he added softly, unless you'd rather stay and see this one present his account. She left, beside herself with fear and rage and remorse. From the doorway, she looked back. Ibra stood rigid, unmoving, betraying no emotion. He was dead already, she thought going out, and by the croix, because of her. Gar's chief ad walked her into Gar's bedchamber and shut her in. She waited a moment or two, lifted the latch, and opened the door a crack. The two men standing to either side presented arms. Vars Adade appeared from nowhere. You wished for something, lady? No. She shut the door in his face and crossed to the far wall to lean against it, Eyes closed. Presently, she began to move restlessly about the room, staring at the trophied walls, looking anywhere but at Gar's great bed. Suddenly, there came a sound that stopped her very breath. Not loud enough to prick curious minds, but full of Agony. Another sound followed, and another, until they became one long, continuous moan. She leaned forward and pressed her hands to her ears. Through the hissing in her head came a scream, short, sharp, and high, too high, surely, for a man then silence. She lowered her hands and slowly straightened up. Gaw was smiling when he came through the door. I shall now thank you, lady, for your services. She backed against the wall. I asked leave to go, she whispered. so you did, and so you shall. After, his smile vanished. You'll not speak of this night to anyone, do you hear? Or your life won't be worth a rat. Aren't you going to the king? What? And repeat my brother's mistake? Sarah, I'll reveal... That treachery in my own way. And in my own time, he finished moving towards her. The attack was swift and fierce, and without preamble. Oh, oh, how, she said to herself over and over, could anything so short take so long? Talk's fierceness had been a passion with no ill intent. Indeed, often it had only roused her to like response. But this savage, brutal man had no idea. Oh, talk, talk, she cried silently. I never must do as much as I do at this moment. At last she lay panting on the coverlet. Gar subsided on to her, squashing her very breath from her body. I see why my brother kept you so long. You only feed the appetite. Laughing, he rolled off her and pulled her on top of him. She twisted in his arms, tried to sit up. But the night had been too much for her. The stables, the shock of seeing Beric's treachery, the horrible moaning from next door, and now this that she'd tried so hard to avoid. With awful suddenness, hot caustic fluid whirled from her gut, spilling out and down, as though it would never, ever stop.